It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a mailbag edition of Locked on Vikings. I'm your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at LukeBraunNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite shows, like Spotify, Himalaya, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, what have you. And if you don't like any of those services, or if you just don't want to be scrolling through clunky podcast apps on your phone, you can just ask your smart device. Play podcast Locked on Vikings, and it takes you right to the most recent episode. And today, since we don't have a game to break down in depth like we usually would be on a Tuesday, we are going to do a mailbag. I asked you for a bunch of Twitter questions. I've got a list here in front of me, and we are going to run through them for most of the show. But first, I do have to talk to you about a little bit of news. It's not wholly consequential because obviously the the season has been moving along without him as is, but it turns out that Chad Beebe has had surgery, and even though it would be possible for him to return from IR, which he went on, I believe, after suffering an injury in week three, he won't return this year. So the wide receiver group will remain Diggs, Thielen, Treadwell, Josh Doxson, and BC Johnson. That's probably your group moving forward. That's probably the de facto group moving into 2020 training camp with Chad Beebe on the outside looking in and a couple of other randoms like Davion Davis and Alexander Hollins who are and Dylan Mitchell who of course are all on the practice squad which will make for again a really weird wide receiver room in in the preseason. Moving on to some Twitter questions. The first one is from Chris who asks, will the Vikings have a win against a team with a winning record by the end of the season? It's looking like their only chances for ones that'll stick by the end of the season are Green Bay and Seattle. So right now the Vikings have wins against two teams who currently hold winning records. That's the Raiders and the Cowboys. They're both six and five. They also have a win against the Eagles who would have a winning record had they not lost that specific game. They would also be six and five. They're only five and six. So this is kind of a meaningless distinction, but for fun, let's let's go through it. So the Raiders currently have games. They need to go uh, three and two down the stretch to have a winning record, right? And they have games against the Chiefs, the Titans, the Jags, the Chargers, and the Broncos. They got to take three of those. I think they have that in them. I really do think that they could end up with uh, the sixth seed in the AFC and a winning record. Meanwhile, the Cowboys have the Bills, the Rams, uh, the Skins, the Eagles, and the Bears left on their schedule, and I think they can absolutely take three of those, if not four, maybe even five. So I think there's going to be two right there, and yes, I think Green Bay and Seattle are obviously excellent opportunities to go get a win against a team with a winning record, but assuming that those uh, are are too nebulous to talk about yet, I also think the Eagles have a reasonable shot to get back over the hump and be a team with a winning record. At the very least, they swept the NFC East, so you're guaranteed to have at least one win against a playoff team, and maybe two if the Raiders come uh, find a way to sneak in. Either way, it's kind of a meaningless distinction, right? Because what is it? Is a winning record really that good of a proxy for a team that's good when somebody can be six and five or five and six? There aren't really that many teams that are like solidly good here in, in the league. Currently by at least 538 Super Bowl project projection, the Vikings have not played a team with a better Super Bowl chance than they do. The only two teams that are even close are Kansas City and Green Bay and maybe Dallas, but you're getting down to a 2% chance to win the Super Bowl. Uh, they just haven't had many opportunities to do that. And if you want to judge their entire season based off of two games, I think you should probably ask yourself why you're narrowing it down so much to something that confirms something you probably already thought regardless of this experiment. Moving on, Tyler at Karma School 
asks, is Clint Kubiak the backup plan at OC when Stefanski gets a head coaching job? That's a really interesting one uh, for one, assuming that uh, Stefanski will get a head coaching job. Obviously, Kevin Stefanski got a lot of buzz. Uh, He actually was in the room interviewing with the Browns for head coach when the Vikings were trying to promote him to OC this last offseason. He ended up turning down that job and probably wisely so with the way things are going in, in Cleveland. So I don't think that that's a guarantee, but obviously it's it's very much a possibility. He's been calling a great year, and that kind of thing tends to uh, lead to head coaching opportunities. My hope is that other teams see this, the people surrounding him, and they think, eh, you know, is he really the guy that is responsible for all this, or are we really just hiring somebody that listened to, to Gary Kubiak? And if, if he, you know Kubiak doesn't come with him, do we really want to do that? I think a team probably uh, will will take that chance and give him the interview. We'll see how it all shakes out. But let's say he does go. Obviously, the you know the easiest transition would be to just make Gary Kubiak the full-time offensive coordinator. I don't think you lose too much out of the scheme there. I think you can run pretty much the same stuff and keep that continuity. It's a matter of if Gary Kubiak actually wants to do that because he has said repeatedly he has no interest in head coaching, uh, mainly due to health issues that caused him to retire from Denver earlier. Uh, but he really doesn't want to be a coach. He is very comfortable in his role as kind of a a consultant and a brain in the room and somebody who is involved, but not somebody who is working tirelessly and and destroying their own personal health for the sake of the game. So it you know, remains to be seen if he would say yes, if offered the job, but that'd be the first person I'd offer it to. The second person is actually Rick Dennison. He's the only other guy there with actual OC experience. He was the OC for a lot of the Denver teams when uh, Kubiak was head coach. I think he was also the OC for the the Houston teams when when Kubiak was there. So I imagine he is kind of like the next in line if Kubiak, Gary Kubiak, uh, turns the job down. After Dennison, then yes, I think it goes to Clint Kubiak. I think, you know, the young, heady, quarterbacks coach is absolutely a, a hot ticket item right now for with guys like Stefanski even uh, has that background somebody like Zach Taylor somebody like Matt LaFleur even John DeFilippo uh, lest we say his name again that's definitely a, a hot ticket I would say though to to your question next in line would be Gary Kubiak if he says no it would be Rick Dennison and if you don't want to go with the old school zone run guy as your offensive coordinator and have a Bill Callahan problem then yes I think you would go with Clint Kubiak but I think Dennison is is in front of him in the pecking order. Real quick, a couple of things that I'm not going to address. A couple of people asked stuff about the upcoming Seahawks game. Uh, I haven't been able to look into that at all. I usually wait until after I've recorded Crossover Wednesday, which will happen tomorrow, or I guess tonight as you're probably listening to this. But that kind of tends to point me in the right direction and like give me a sense of what I should really be looking for. And then that helps me prep for the preview episode uh, on Thursday, which will will all go as normal. And I'll talk about all that stuff there. The other thing I'm not really going to talk about is a couple people asked about Drew Samia and Ole Udo. I kind of just did that episode. If you look at last Thursday's episode, uh, it's titled uh, Rooting Guide and uh, a Rookie Review. And around the 18, 19, 20 minute mark is when I start talking about uh, Drew Samia and Ole Udo and, and all of the rookies. Um, but suffice it to say, both of those guys are kind of in the same spot. They had they showed enough flashes to say, hey, you know, we're promising prospects, but they also made too many mistakes to really be ready to put into an actual game situation, especially in a playoff run. Uh, it's just a little too dangerous. They're not quite ready to play. There's no shame in that, though. Uh, they're waiting in the wings, and they'll come back in 2020. And for, you know, more on why I have that take for them, they're just not options right now. And for more on that, go listen to that episode. More questions coming up, but first, let's talk a little 
little bit about how to make your weekend a little bit more exciting. And nothing makes football more exciting, especially for games you would otherwise have no stake in, than putting a little bit of money down on it. And that is why I'm here to tell you about my bookie. My bookie is the number one online sports book, and with good reason. Their website is easy to navigate, it's very clean and easy to find exactly the bet you want to make. And when you win, they pay out right away. And right now, if you go to mybookie.ag, that's mybookie.ag, and sign up, enter promo code locked on, and they will double your first deposit. That is a 100% match. Free gambling money. And I mean, come on, you guys are smart. You guys know what you're doing. Go put a buck on it and make yourself some cash. That's mybookie.ag, promo code locked on. Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Locked On Podcast Network. In this crazy, unprecedented, and unnerving time, I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down? The Calm app is available for you, 40% off to our listeners at calm.com slash LockedOnNBA. Stuck at home, want fitness? Echelon Fit has been a sponsor of ours, and you can go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. And if you're looking to add some new knowledge and get a little smarter in your free time, Masterclass, or at least your time at home, masterclass.com slash P-E-R is offering 15% off. If you missed any of those, go to LockdownPodcast.com slash offers. That's LockdownPodcast.com slash offers. Thank you very much for tuning in to Lockdown Podcast Network. We hope to be here for you to give you a relief and a respite from all the other news. And thanks very much. Be safe and practice your social distancing. Moving on, the next question comes from somebody whose Twitter handle is Irv Smith Jr. underscore goat. I don't know if that's an Irv Smith Jr. burner uh, or just a big fan, but he says, will Irv Smith be tight end one by 2020? I love the branding. Keep it up. And honestly, we're not that far away from Irv Smith being the primary tight end uh, here on the Vikings. As of this moment, Irv Smith has run 200 routes and Kyle Rudolph has run 250. Like, they're not that far off, and the distinction of tight end one kind of becomes meaningless when you're a team that runs 12 personnel or two tight end personnel as much as the Vikings. At a certain point, you're just kind of, but it's like the difference between Diggs and Thielen and which one's wide receiver one. I don't know who cares. You have to cover both of them. I do still think, I mean, Kyle Rudolph's had a little bit of a hot stretch here, especially that Dallas game. He's been playing pretty well. He got the go-ahead touchdown against Denver, too. Uh, and, And so I think that, he is still, though, a little bit feeling the effects of age, and I think Father Time's catching up to him. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, once you see a few signs of it, 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 it can decline pretty quickly. So by 2020, I, yeah, no, I would not be surprised if Kyle Rudolph were in a, a relegated to a more Jason Witten, you know, run a stick route kind of role where uh, Irv Smith Jr. was actually the one, you know, running downfield and being the primary weapon. And that brings me to a similar question by Spade Sultan, who asks, should Stefanski utilize Irv Smith Jr. more in the passing game, I couldn't help but think about him when I was watching the plays Shanahan was drawing up for Kittle. Of course, uh, we just watched on Sunday Night Football uh, the 49ers just undress the Packers on national television, which is delicious. And so I was looking into this, and it led me to something completely insane that I I found. Right now, the Vikings target their tight ends in total, uh, I think, 14th most in the league. So a fairly average amount of tight end usage, and and that kind of makes sense, right? You've had a lot of Kyle Rudolph in and blocking, and then you use Irv Smith Jr. a, a normal number of times. And by the way, to the point of, you know, Irv Smith Jr. versus Kyle Rudolph, Irv Smith on 50, 52 fewer routes to be exact, 
Uh, he has 32 targets to Kyle Rudolph's 34. He's caught 27 of them to Kyle Rudolph's 29, and he has 10 more yards, 261 to 251, for a total yards per route run, if you divide all that up, of 1.31 versus Kyle Rudolph's one even. So that's actually a really significant margin of efficiency where uh, Irv Smith has, has been a more efficient player to target than Kyle Rudolph. And again, that that sorts away all of the plays where Kyle Rudolph was blocking. This is already adjusting for that. So that's something. But here is what was really astounding to me. So I went on to Sharp Football and I looked at all the tight end usage stuff. And the Vikings throw to their tight ends, like I said, 14th most often. Now on Sharp's football site, he has uh, something called success rate, which is a basic way of asking on each play, did the offense or did the defense do better here? Who's happier with the result of this play? And there's a lot of different ways you can go about that and some debate over that. The way that Warren Sharp does it is he says uh, four yards on first down, six y- or four, 40% of the yards to gain on first down, which is usually four, 60% of whatever's left over on second down, and then of course 100% on third and fourth down. And by that metric, the Vikings throwing to tight end is the most successful version of a team throwing to a personnel group. They are successful more than any other team throwing to their wide receivers, more than any other team throwing to their tight ends, and of course more than any other team throwing to their running backs. It is the singular most successful personnel group in receiving in football right now. That's bonkers. I mean, they're successful more than like the Saints throwing to their wide receivers or the Patriots in any of those categories. Any of those like hyper famous groups, the Vikings tight ends are successful more often and they're remarkably consistent because they're not generating like a ton of explosive plays. I think they rank like 12th in that. And they've had some, you know, you've had a couple of those big ones to Irv Smith, a couple of, you know, big long ones to uh, Kyle Rudolph where he gets left alone. But really what that is, is there's a lot of consistency. If you remember back in the the day uh, before the the episode before the Cowboys game when I was explaining how to attack their cover three and I talked about triangle reads, a lot of times that read is throw to the tight end and he gets seven yards and that's a successful play and the Vikings have been remarkably good at that. So throwing to these tight ends, the Rudolph and the Irv Smith combination has been an unbelievably successful thing. So yeah, I do agree. I think that they should probably do that a little bit more. Unfortunately, play calling doesn't really work that way and this is what I see all the time. Ah, you know, why aren't they throwing to so-and-so? Why aren't they utilizing this player? That player's out there and he's running around, but the coverage dictates what the quarterback is going to do. Remember back to those triangle reads and if you missed it, basically there are three different players out there that are attacking different parts of the cover three and putting a lot of different players in conflict. And so, you know, defenders kind of have to pick their poison. And that means that defenders are choosing who you throw at. Another example is, uh, say you are in a single high coverage, which means there's one safety. We just saw this on Monday Night Football. There was a touchdown to uh, Hollywood Brown, I think it was, that went this way. Uh, the Rams were in single high, and there were two Ravens receivers running up the, the seams of cover three. So, that single high safety has to choose one guy or the other and whoever he doesn't choose is basically getting a free touchdown. So at that point, the safety is just kind of like picking a player to cover and it's no longer really a referendum on either of those guys. And so the idea of, well, they should just throw to their tight ends more often. You don't really design plays that say this is going to be a tight end throw. You design a play that says, okay, the tight end is going to run this route and the throw could go to him. But if they cover it a certain way, then the throw is going to go elsewhere. And I'm perfectly happy with that. And, and, and it's not really like a thing you set out for that said, yeah, 
the tight ends have been remarkably efficient, and I'm glad that the Vikings are going to continue to have them on the field a lot. Next one comes from a guy named Observed Idiocy, who asks, uh, 538 gives the Vikings a 49% chance at winning the division by one method, and 47% like another seems high given the pack's schedule and current tiebreakers. Do you know if they consider strength of remaining schedule? So short answer to that is yes, they do, uh, because their model is based off of uh, a team's chance to win throughout the the rest of the season. So if they have a high percentage chance to win because they play a bunch of cupcakes, then that's going to lead to them, you know, having a higher chance to win the division. And really the crux of this is that uh, the Vikings are the home team for the most important game on either team's schedule, which is the the Vikings-Packers game. That's far and away the most important one now. And the Vikings are probably going to be favored in that one, uh, especially at this particular juncture because everybody's so low on the Packers because of what just happened to them. But also just by nature of being the home team in a divisional game, they're probably probably going to be favored in that one. So that is going to give the Vikings a bit of a leg up. Now the Vikings have to play the Seahawks and the Chargers. Those teams, in my opinion, are at least a lot harder than uh, what the Packers have left, which is Washington and, and the New York Giants. So it kind of makes it up and it all adds up to things being about a 50-50 chance. And I think that kind of makes sense. There actually was a whole conversation in that question that like uh, that ensued about like other places and their models. And yeah, everybody kind of adds things up differently and calculates odds differently and weights, you know, quarterback play and defensive play and it's all there's a lot of kind of uh, w- like which method do you like but it is a healthy exercise to go through all of them and compare them and if you know one is completely off the off their rocker and a total outlier you can kind of say okay something's probably going weird with that one and the four that agree here is probably closer to the truth totally a healthy exercise More questions coming up, but first, treat yourself to the meal you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get five bucks off of their first order of 15 bucks or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code LOCKEDON. Listening on the go, if you can't visit DoorDash right now, you can find this and all other offers from Locked On sponsors at LockedOnPodcasts.com slash offers. Moving on in the same vein, uh, somebody asked, Tom Rennick asked, if we beat the pack only to tie them with the same record, what are the tiebreakers? So I figured this is a good chance to actually talk about how tiebreakers work because it really might uh, come up this year. So within the division specifically, obviously the first tiebreaker is head-to-head if the Vikings do beat the Packers, but it ends up uh, in a, a tied record at the end of the year because the Vikings lose a game somewhere else then obviously the uh, head-to-head will be a one-to-one split. After that, it is games won and lost within the division. So unfortunately, the Vikings aren't in a great spot here because they already have two division losses, which means that the Packers would have to not only lose that game against the Vikings, but they'd have to lose one of their remaining games against the Lions or Bears, which is probably less than likely. They're going to be favored pretty heavily in both of those. But just to tie them, the Vikings would also have to sweep their remaining division games. Next up is games played against common opponents for the Vikings and Packers. That's basically their entire schedule, except for the games against each other and the games against their uh, NFC West and NFC South opponents. So for the Vikings, that's the Falcons and Seahawks games will get thrown out. And for the Packers, their uh, Panthers and 49ers games would get thrown out. If that's still tied, then it's games just within the conference. And if that too is tied, which again, we're getting very, very unlikely, but if it gets all the way down to it, then it's strength of victory, which is the win-loss percentage of the teams that you have beaten. And beyond that, you get into weird strength of schedule stuff and then point differential stuff. And if it all is crazy tied by some miracle of God, you go to a coin flip. But to be frank, the Vikings are not in the position to get tiebreakers. It's pretty unlikely that they would get tiebreakers uh, if the, the division ends up tied. The Packers probably win the division. Next one comes from Skull Wales, which is kind of a, a, two fa- a multifaceted question, but he says, with cornerbacks finding it in 
increasingly difficult to play shutdown coverage which, with the changes in DPI over the last few years. Is there any evidence that pass rush has now overtaken coverage as the most valuable trait for a defense? Uh, starting there, so yes, there's a bunch of evidence that uh, coverage is more important than pass rush, and the general logic here, and this is all supported by a bunch of data and some very meticulous studies, but the general like uh, logline of it basically is that when a cornerback makes a play on the ball, the play is over, right? You swatted it down, you caused an incompletion, and that's it. When a defensive lineman makes a play, they get a pressure, and the play can still continue depending on what happens with the quarterback, or if they get the ball out quickly, you know, they can get the ball out quickly and negate your pressure. They can't, you know, do some scheme thing and negate the fact that you were good in coverage. And with particularly shut down corners taking away entire areas of the field or entire receivers because you are so good at coverage, tends to be a more advantageous way to stop an offense from moving than getting pressure on a quarterback because ultimately pressure can still be mitigated with a whole bunch of things like screens or rollouts, etc. Can't really do that with coverage. So even though there have been issues like DPI, there are similar issues that defensive linemen have to put up with, like, you know, timing snap counts and stuff and getting all kinds of penalties there and, and illegal hands to the face seems to be called quite a bit more this year, although maybe that's just my bias because I hate that penalty a lot. Uh, but, you know, roughing the passer stuff has been like a whole thing throughout the years and the body weight rule and the Aaron Rodgers stuff. So while DPI is frustrating, I think that coverage is still probably king. This isn't a debate that I've weighed up, that I've weighed in on very much, though. I, I think that people sometimes take it too far and they say, ah, oh, your pass rush doesn't matter or whatever. And I know that a lot of that is just like a meme on Twitter. But I, I think that ultimately the two things complement each other, right? A good pass rush reduces the amount of time that your coverage people need to cover. And good coverage increases the amount of time that your pass rush has to get home. And and the two complement each other very well. They're so intrinsically linked that kind of dividing them up and, and like creating a dichotomy, I think, is kind of a false one. But the second part of Skull Wales' question is, uh, do you think that drafting a quality three-tech or re-signing Richardson would benefit the defense more than replacing our cornerbacks, ignoring cap space? So, okay, ignoring cap space, sure. Uh, I actually think, in spite of all the coverages King stuff, yes, because the difference between Shamar Stefan and a guy like... Uh, Sheldon Richardson or equivalent, I guess, if you're, if that's your, your point there is, you know, draft a guy that's as good as him. Yeah. The difference between Stefan and Richardson is so much greater than the difference between, uh, Xavier Rhodes and Trey Waynes and whoever you would replace them with, uh, that I do think that it would be better for the defense to get a better three technique in there. And I've talked about in the past, how the Vikings are kind of suffering for not having a lot of interior push, a lot of interior pressure. The, the nose tackles that they have are decent against the run. Shamar Stefan's okay. Uh, Jaleel Johnson is kind of coming into his own. Of course, Linval is Linval, but their inability to generate pressure is cheapening the immense amounts of pressure that you're getting from Daniil Hunter and Everson Griffin. It's making it harder for those guys to get home and actually affect the play the way that pressure typically does because there's so much room for quarterbacks to step up in the pocket. Remove that problem and suddenly you are an absolute nightmare for everybody to play no matter what's going on on the back end. And that brings me to what I think is going to be the last one, uh, which represents a whole bunch of questions came in about the cornerbacks, right? Can we save the pass defense was one, you know, should we, what do we do about the cornerbacks? What's wrong with the cornerbacks? You know, uh, what's up with Xavier, with Xavier Rhodes? Uh, but the one that I'm going to use to kind of represent, should Holton Hill get more chances? Uh, well, the one I'm going to use, though, to represent all this is from Jeff Douglas, who asks, who is more likely to get benched after the bye, Elfline or Rhodes? Uh, and so I wanted to address this because it's the one that brings up, I think, the the worst Rube take on fan Twitter to me, which is whenever a player is playing poorly, they should get benched, which is almost never the case. 
Uh, and somebody even responded and was like, well, they won't do it. They're just too stubborn. And that was like, all right, I got to address this now because that's spectacularly wrong. Uh, it's not stubbornness to keep a struggling starter in. In fact, most teams have a starter somewhere on their roster that is struggling, even the Patriots. And the thing is, very rarely is the backup secretly better. It, it's very, I mean, imagine what you're like accusing the team of here that they have a player who is better than, say, Pat Elfline, right? Say they think that Dakota Dozier is better than Pat Elfline. A case you would be very hard pressed to actually go out and back up. But say they believe it, but because they don't want to look like they were wrong, they're keeping a worse player out there and might lose a game because, like, could you imagine a coach actually doing that? Now, I do think that there's probably some bias toward, like, a guy that you drafted, but it's not necessarily for fear of being proven wrong. It's for hope that you drafted a guy with a little bit more potential and giving him the reps is, you know, he's going to figure it out. And that struggling player, after figuring it out, is going to be way better than anything you'd ever get with a backup, so you might as well try to go get it instead of giving up and moving on to to the backup. But even the struggling starter is very often better than the backup, and I think Pat Elfline's a great example of that. He has had lots of struggles, and I've actually complained a lot, and I've said, I don't think he's a starting quality player at certain points in this season. At other points in the season, he's actually been pretty good, and he's been very up and down. I don't think he's good enough to like anoint the job in 2020 you might want to like move Samia to the left or go get somebody else to go compete with him at left guard if not you know outright go get a new starter but for the purposes of this season and especially keeping offensive line continuity benching him would be a colossally stupid move you had a little bit of an argument when you had Brett Jones who we haven't seen in a while so there was some kind of like well you know we don't know what he is maybe he is better uh, but of course we don't know you and I because we aren't in practice all the time but the coaches do see him all the time and from what we did see on him, we can construct a pretty easily a hypothesis as for why Brett Jones wasn't starting. He was very poor at uh, second level blocks, at climbing to the second level and going and getting linebackers. So poor, in fact, that there are certain plays you would not be able to call with him. You wouldn't be able to get him into the second level to go attack a linebacker and certain outside zone runs, things that are staples. I mean, that whole Dalvin Cook, almost an MVP candidate thing, you can kiss that goodbye if Brett Jones is in the game. And now he's on IR, so it's kind of a moot point. But with Dakota Dozier, he has been worked every time he has taken the field, whether it is in relief of Elfline or Josh Klein. The line's just better with Elfline out there than it would be with Dakota Dozier. So as much as you would maybe frustrated every single time, and there's always like a kind of public enemy number one with the Vikings. It was Treadwell for a while. Last year, it was Tom Compton. This year, I actually think it's Xavier Rhodes, but Elfline is up there. But every time they make a mistake, you blow it way out of proportion because there's somebody that you're so used to seeing struggle that you're just going, oh, how many more times do I have to put up with this? And blah, 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 You get so upset with him that you probably blow smaller mistakes out of proportion or mistakes that don't really have that big of an impact. Yeah, some Sometimes he'll give up a huge sack, but that sets up a second and 17 that they'll go and uh, and convert, which is something that pretty much happened in the Broncos game. And that drive ended up in a touchdown. These are the kinds of things like that. That's as bad as it gets. Right. Whereas the seven, eight, nine good plays leading up to that where you didn't pay any attention to him, you didn't give him any credit for. And offensive line is about consistency. So some, to a certain point, that's fair. But angry fan bases tend to blow all that stuff out of proportion. So my answer to that is relax. And benching Xavier Rhodes for similar reasons would be just as insane. Now, Holton Hill, of course, has looked promising. He made a couple plays in the Dallas game. He even looked pretty good when he had to come in for like seven games in relief of Trey Waynes last year. But he actually had some struggles in uh, the preseason. If you remember, you probably haven't thought about this since it happened, but if you remember the very end of the fourth preseason game against the Buffalo Bills, Holton Hill got destroyed by third stringers. And there was actually a moment where I was like, oh my God, is he going to get cut for this? Of course, he was only in the game at that point 
because he was in the doghouse for all the suspension stuff. Uh, but it was still like, oh, whoa, that's maybe the, we should show a little bit of caution. Uh, and I think as much as Xavier Rhodes has been struggling, he hasn't been ba- a backup quality uh, corner. I mean, he's still a starting quality corner, just worse than we're used to him being. And that's another thing that's kind of biasing us here, right? We have seen Xavier Rhodes play at a Pro Bowl level before, so much as two years ago. And even last year, he was playing decently through a bajillion injuries. Certainly a regression from his 2017 performance, but we're comparing that to average cornerback play, is what I would call it right now. And there's a lot of stats and stuff that I've I've said ad nauseum on this podcast, so you probably are sick of hearing it. But he's playing at an average level right now. We're not used to that. And so we see, oh, he's worse than he always was. Therefore, he is bad. And and I I don't blame you for having that perception. I I think that that's an easy conclusion to come to. But if you compare it to what's going on throughout the league, think about how Xavier Rhodes gets beat. Now, he's been missing tackles. I will give you that. That needs to get cleaned up. But I think that there's two different ways you can go and solve that problem, right? Xavier Rhodes is missing tackles. Do we bench him and go put in somebody who may or may not be worse at that? Or do we try to fix the problem? And option B is always going to be the place that coaches go. Try to fix it so that's not an issue anymore, rather than just nuking the whole thing and pulling him. And read the pass defense in general, right? Xavier Rhodes is somebody that I've talked about a ton on this show, so I won't go too much deeper into it. But with the pass defense as a whole, we might also be overreacting to that. Here's the thing. By uh, DVOA, which is a football outsider's uh, statistic that is basically success rate. It's the same kind of uh, question of who did better on this play, the offense or the defense, and then tallying that up, although they go a lot deeper than, you know, just like down in distance and how many yard, how much of the yards to gain did you get? They talk about, you know, fumbles and and what should we weigh sacks and what should we weigh certain kinds of yardage? And it's a much more like complex thing. But the basic crux of it is the same question as, as uh, success rate. Did you do better than your peers on this particular down in distance? Did you get enough to call it a win? And by that metric, the Vikings defense ranks seventh. And that's an opponent adjusted metric, by the way. So that's already adjusting for stuff like, oh, but they played like Brandon Allen and the Broncos and, you know, in a crappy Giants offense. That's all in there, baked in and adjusted for. So perhaps we're overreacting a little bit. Now that's total defense and the run defense has been excellent. The pass defense is dragging that average down because they only rank 14th. That's still in the top half of the league. Like, as bad as you think the the passing defense is, they are in the top half of the league. They're in the middle of the pack. That's not something that I'm going to start pulling fire alarms for. And honestly, I think they're playing below their mean. So when we talk about regression to the mean, that can go up too. That just means you're going to generally kind of stray toward whatever your average level of play is. And I think the Vikings are playing below their current average on, on the back end there. And that might regress upward, and then the Vikings would really be a force to be reckoned with. There's a lot of stuff that they are actually doing wrong. You know, they're getting beat by by good receivers. That if especially if you are the kind of offense that runs through one receiver, this is why the Broncos really had a lot of success. And you know, like the Cowboys running through Amari Cooper, the Broncos running through Cortland Sutton, even like the Skins and uh, Terry McLaurin. Like that's a specific formula that tends to leverage the Vikings' weaknesses a little bit better than somebody who is going to be like a little bit more spread out. Like you know the Eagles and the receivers they were working with. But put it all simply, the Vikings are playing at an average to above average level right now, pretty much all at, at worst, right? And then there are parts that are still just as elite as always, like Eric Kendricks and the edge rushers, and honestly, the safety play. So no, I'm not pulling any fire alarms. I'm not benching either of them. Who is more likely to get benched? 
I would say, I guess Rhodes is more likely to get benched than Elfline because, I mean, it's like just so clear that Elfline is better than Dozier. There's just not a better option on the roster. But, you know, I'm comparing a 1% chance to a half a percent chance. You know, it's not really that meaningful of a distinction. So to that, I say chill. And that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Locked on Vikings. Tomorrow is crossover Wednesday with Locked on Seahawks, and then we're back in the regular cadence. So get excited for that. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, or you can simply ask your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow for crossover Wednesday. And as always, skull. Hey, sports fans. My name is Ben Beacon. I'm the host of Locked On Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked On NBA Network. The Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season, but there's still plenty to talk about. From the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer to the possibility that all-star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night, it's still going to be a fun spring. Tune into Locked On Wolves daily, Monday through Friday. I'm Ben Beacon with Locked On Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.